Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take your Bible and uh, turn to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll find it just to the right of the book of Proverbs in your Old Testament. We're going to endeavor to begin today our study of this uh, book. I'm asking the question in the title in this introductory message, uh, Is Life Really Worth Living? This is an introductory message, and I'm planning seven, eight, maybe nine messages in this book that uh, is very difficult to rightfully understand. Ecclesiastes, I'm, life is a puzzle. Is it not? It's a puzzle, especially to the modern man on the street. Man is made through our educational system, through the culture, to feel as if he is nothing more than a mere animal. Yet everything within us cries out for the larger view of life. Men and women cannot live with uh, social Darwinianism. That is, Darwin's, there's no rhyme or reason. There's uh, really, you're an accident. There's no purpose. You're nothing more than cosmic dust. There's no destiny. It's just here and now. Men and women cannot, <clears throat> at the end of the day, live with that. They want to know. What's the meaning to life? Why am I here? Is there reason? Is there purpose? And that's because God has made us in his image and in his likeness. We are not like animal life. We are not like in, in, in uh, inorganic life. Uh, God has made us with human bodies, but he's breathed into us the living soul, the nafesh, that's made in God's image. And we crave to know meaning, purpose, value, What's it all about? What's the big thing where all the particulars fit in and we can understand it? Solomon wrote the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Though his name is never mentioned in the book, uh, just by the very way he begins this, we know that uh, it must be Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He writes it, however, when he's an old man. I think it's right to think about uh, uh, the Song of Songs, and one of these days we're going to do a series on that. Marriage and, and family and romance, and what does God say about that? You'll discover instantly God's not squeamish about such things. He made us that. He's pleased with that. We may be a little bit like that, but God is not. He's delighted. Someday we'll do that. I think he wrote Song of Song, a Song of Psalm in his younger days. And then the, the book of Proverbs and all those pithy sayings of wisdom, the collection, uh, in his middle ages of life, he made a number of horrendous mistakes. And, and then finally, at the sunset years of his life, as he looks back and after having tried this or that or that other thing, he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll say in a moment is really a sermon. 
In fact, uh, today this preacher is going to use another man's uh, sermon to deliver. This is a sermon, and we'll look at as to why it is. He writes it as an old man. He's given the gift of wisdom. He delivers a sermon to the assembly. The word Ecclesiastes uh, doesn't come from the Hebrew. It comes from the Greek, the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. And the word does, sounds similar to some of your ears to the word ecclesia. It's the New Testament word for church. It means assembly or church in our New Testament, the way it's uh, uh, translated. And so he's, uh, the, the name of it would be the, the assembly or the gathering or uh, the gathering, it's Old Testament, so we wouldn't say word church, but uh, it's the preacher speaking to the church, the teacher, the preacher, the koheleth is the Hebrew word, and he's speaking as Solomon, as old age, this book, uh, this message, this sermon, really laying out the issue, is life really worth living? Well, he searches in what are pages to us as we unfold this book. He's searching for the key, the key that unlocks the meaning of life. He looks at life with its seemingly great mysteries and certain contradictions, and there are, and he wonders if the endless toil of existence is even worth it. For we live such a short life, and death, well... It's certain for you and for me. Life, uh, at least at surface level and beyond, it appears to be filled with vanity. It's vain. And that's what he says in verse 2 of chapter 1. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's the NIV. Vanity of vanities, the King James. All is vanity. In the Hebrew text, the word habel is the word for vain or meaningless. It's the same word for breath. In verse 2, it appears five times. You can't miss it. It's like stumbling over clutter in the, uh, in the walkway in the dark. You can't miss it. It's the theme of his, uh, this whole message, this whole book. Vanity of vanity, meaningless of meaningless, breath of breath. The Hebrew mindset, uh, could there be anything less meaning than a breath? Just exhale. Is there anything less than that? It's about the bare minimum, isn't it, of all? That's what he's saying. Actually, James picks up that same thought when he says that life is a breath, or it's a vapor. You know that from James. The, he, the Greek word is atmos, atmosphere, the, the air. Again, it's the same thought. It's meaningless, he's saying. It's meaningless. With the endless toils and the contradictions and the surprises and curveballs of life, uh, it, uh, it's fraught. Uh, it appears to be nonsensical and maybe even vain. I ask you, does life ever seem futile to you? Does it? Does it ever seem the cycles and the events as if, like, it's endless. What's the reason? Is the rhyme and reason to it? A doctor uh, uh, cares for his patient. 
the diagnosis's problem. He gives him uh, a prescription or writes a subscription for him. He takes the medicine and he gets better, but the doctor knows that sooner or later this patient's going to die. He will. In fact, I'm reminded that every time you and I get some sort of serious illness, it's like a bow, it's like the shot being shot over the bow of our life. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a reminder that the day is going to come when the we too will die, even though we get better. Seems endless, seems futile. The student, how about those of you that are students? You work and work to finish an assignment, and what does your instructor give you again? Another one, and another one, and another one. It's endless, it's endless. You're going to come to the end. Betsy, you're going to graduate in May, right? Great day. How about that? But you're going to discover like Joni has. It doesn't end. <laughs> it's going to go on and on and on. You go like, it's endless. It's, life seems futile. And then uh, if you're a homemaker, and a number of you are, I mean, how many times do you have to vacuum the house? How many dishes do you clean? How many meals? I mean, the, I mean it's, just, it's just endless, it seems. What's the reason? What's the purpose? It just seems to be without sense almost nonsensical. This life, I say to you, ever seemed to be futile, vain. If you've asked that question, and you're, you're asking the very same question that, that uh, Solomon is posing for us in this fallen world of ours. He's saying to us essentially, and you'll discover it, don't let the futility of life get in the way of you enjoying the life that God has given to you. We'll see that over and over in this. Well, know that no book of the Scriptures has been so maligned and so misunderstood as the book of Ecclesiastes. Even the great Martin Luther, he really doubted whether it was inspired. He had all sorts of problems with it. Today, if you read uh, many books on it, uh, the scholars so-called of the liberal bent, and there are many of them, think it's nothing more than a second-century cut-and-paste job by all sorts of uh, redactic-type editors and so on and so forth. And the, the one thing they're convinced on is certainly Solomon didn't write this. Well, it's a book that's uh, been embraced by those who are Epicureans. You know, the, 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 uh, the wine, women, and song, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. They'll quote this. They'll quote this. Even the birds in their great song, turn, turn, turn. Right? I can still sing it. Although it's a total anti-war song. They twisted it right out of Ecclesiastes 2. It has nothing to do with what Solomon is talking about. Nothing. They uh, abuse it and, and disabuse it and misused it. There are others that <coughs> think that the, the book is utterly pessimistic. You read it, you go like, Oh my, go home and die. It's not so, though. There are others that say it's completely fatalistic. Okay, sarah, sarah. What will be, will be. We're nothing more than cogs in the great machine, and that's it. That's not the message of this book as well, but some would teach that. And some would say, well, it's just utterly filled with tears and sorrowful. And even the great C.I. Schofield 
in all his uh, good writings of his reference Bible. I don't think he got it quite right. You can check in, the, in his reference Bible in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. He actually writes in his editorial notes, well, you know, there's no revelation here. No revelation here. God commits 12 chapters of, uh, of his Bible, and, and I don't understand that kind of thinking that would uh, say that uh, there's certainly no revelation here. Uh, when it particularly, in chapter 12, verse 9, we discover by Solomon's own writing under inspiration that it was the great shepherd, the Lord himself, who gave these very words. So it is been rightfully uh, ripped apart and misused. Ecclesiastes is both the working man's book as well as the thinking man's book. It is the working man's book for it answers his boredom with the routine of joylessly <clears throat> eating and drinking and earning a paycheck. It answers the greater question for him with all of that as the working man. But more, it's the thinking man's book as well. For man is haunted by the questions, who am I? Where am I going? What am I supposed to be doing now? And so to the thinking man or woman, it answers those questions as well. It's a great book. It's been neglected from our pulpits too long, but I've made a study of it for years, and it's difficult to get wrap your arms around. But uh, because of that, I think that's probably some of the reason why it's been neglected from our pulpits and our Sunday school classes and small groups have not enjoyed the real meaning and teaching of this book. Well, let's uh, make three observations as Solomon searches for the key that unlocks for us the puzzle of life. He's going to be looking for the key. For life lived apart from God, and here it, here, here it is, has no meaning. I think of Francis Schaeffer when he said, Weep for the prophets and the sensitive people who are lost and express their worldview. And it looks like a sick joke. Weep for them. Weep, because the dust of death is everywhere. And they see the dust, and they see the meaningless and the absurdities of life and the inconsistencies and uh, the suicides that result from that doesn't make sense. Weep for them. Pray for them. I think he's right. For life lived apart from God has no meaning, lacking rhyme or reason. Often it seems absurd. For here it is. Life in and of itself is unable. It's unable to supply the key to the questions of who you are. Your identity. Life will not tell you that. They're all particulars here. It won't. We're going to work our way through it. It won't. At the end of the day, if that's all you look at is things under the sun, you'll be utterly clueless as to who you are and the dignity and the grace that God has built you with. You'll not know the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the values of life. You'll not understand the place of pleasure or enjoyment or Finally, your ultimate destiny. Only in coming to know God through His Son, the Savior, can one begin to find the answers to such questions. Well, the first observation 
Number one, the book itself is one sermon. It's not a collection. It's different from the Proverbs, different from the hymn book, the Psalms. Different. It's, a, it's one sermon. We divide it into 12 chapters in the English Bible, and we're glad for that, and into the verse division so that we can turn to it and look it up and all that. But it's, a, it's one sermon. Note a few things about that. It's a unit. It has an introduction, and it has a conclusion. The introduction, we already saw that, uh, is that uh, everything is without sense or meaning. In verse uh, 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is utterly meaningless. That's the introduction. He introduces his theme. And it reminds us, and I remind you, that God owes us no explanation. God does not. He is God, and we are not. Uh, apart from Him, as we look at life and all its parts, apart from Him, it makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. But this uh, book, which is a sermon, also ends with a conclusion. Chapter 12, verse 13. And uh, hardly ever read the book without going to your conclusion. And now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. There's, that's where he's moving towards. And so it's, a, it's God's book. It's a God's message. And it's timely for us. In fact, I believe that Solomon's words provide a valid critique of modern secular humanism, where man is big and God is small, if at all. He critiques it utterly and shows it utterly bankrupt in the world in which we live. Well, B, you know, we need to notice, as we do an introduction of this sermon, this book, that uh, uh, Solomon inserts six times a refrain. Now, when we sing music, we're used to to the refrain, it's often called the chorus. And like this uh, reoccurring notes in a symphony, orchestra, some of you like higher highbrow music and symphony music, and even in a common theme, it'll come back and it'll, it'll play that common melody again. Throughout this message, he weaves this in six times, this refrain. And it's important for you and I to see this beautiful, the, these beautiful notes that are played because it enters into the meaning uh, of, of this whole book and God's message for your life and for mine. I'd like us uh, to read these, uh, uh, these, and I, they're on the board here. I'd like to read them. Just You can note these, and in fact, in your Bible, you may want to go in uh, with, with special marker and mark them. Because this is the recurring theme that helps carry us through. It shows us that this book is not some sort of fatalistic, pessimistic book. Go home and die. And that's God's message. These reoccurring themes like notes give us and point us in the right direction as we look at life under the sun. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes 2.24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. The second one is, uh, we're going to go one after the other. Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. 
verse 13, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. That's one's work. This, this is a gift of God. The third is uh, chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. Or who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. And I realized that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Let's look at the next, chapter 8, verse 15. So then I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than, than for him to eat and drink and be glad. And joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And last, let us look at chapter 9, verse 7. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for it is now that God favors what you do. But God favors now what you do. Well, these are the beautiful reoccurring notes of the symphony of this message that God wants us to note and not miss. They're absolutely beautiful. Well, the book in itself is one sermon. It's a unity, a, a preface, an introduction, a conclusion, and the refrains. Notice a second observation as Solomon searches for this key that unlocks for us the puzzle of life. And that is uh, the sermon's premise, found in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. All is meaningless, or vanity, if you will. We should note on this, what does he mean? A, by this he does not mean that life is not worth living. He's not saying, well, that's it, let's go out and kill ourselves, because... Uh, if that's all there is to a fire. Remember that song years ago? If that's all there is, if that's all there is, you want to go out and jump off the bridge after you embrace that song. He's not saying that. That's not what he means by this. But notice here, I put on your sheet. By this, he, he does not mean that life is not worth living. Rather, he means try as we will, and we will. We'll never figure it out. We will never figure it all out. He tells us how he searched for the key, this key that unlocks the meaning, all the wherefores and ifs of life. But he discovered that God alone is the keeper of that key. And he does not give that key to men and to women. He doesn't do it. It's his. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. This is one of the key verses of this whole book. In chapter 3, verse 11, we discover here that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He goes on, one of those recurring refrains, I know that there is nothing better for men 
than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is a gift from God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. You see, God has made us, in verse 11, with eternity in our hearts. We are made different from all the rest of of that which lives. When it says that God has made us with eternity in our hearts, he simply means by that that uh, God has made us with a desire to want to see the totality or the wholeness of life. We want to see how the particulars fit into the overarching theme of all of life. We have a craving, a yearning, a desire to want to know that. We strive to. I read it in the paper yesterday. Someone's life fell apart, and they lost everything. And the caption was, well, they said everything happens for a reason, and it's good. That person, I don't know if they were saved or not, and it's not true for those who are not saved, who do not know Christ. But there's that yearning in the heart to now try and make sense of this recent loss, this recent tragedy. There's a yearning to do that. Let me put it another way. Many of you have dogs. Your dog never sits by a cozy, warm fire on a cold winter night contemplating the meaning of life. Never does. Sitting there wagging his little tail. He's not contemplating what, what God's up to. Who am I? Gee, I wonder where I'm going. Never has a thought. Unless his stomach gets a growl in it, he wants to eat something, groaning, and he's earning, and, or he wants to go outside and do his business or whatever it is. That's it. You are not your dog. You're not your parakeet. Some of you have parakeets. He's never whistling, wondering, What's the, what did that mean? How does that fit in? What is God up to? I have to say that because of the nuttiness of our day. God has made us with that, the eternity built within our heart. And when disaster hurts and trouble strikes and curveballs happen, and they happen, don't they? Well, I didn't see that coming. We want to plan our course. We're like God that way. He has a great plan, right? I take my day timer every week. I write down my seven-day plan in detail. I'm here to tell you that not one day has ever come about exactly as I've planned. I don't know if you're like that. I always feel like I'm playing catch-up, running to catch-up to do, right? And God has some surprises. Phone calls come in. Things happen. I didn't see that. Oh, no. There's a yearning within us. God has built us with eternity in our hearts. We're not just for the moment. We want to see how it all fits in. But we can never do it. We can never do it just focusing on life here and now and on ourself. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 14. It's another one of the key verses in this whole Bible, in this whole book, I mean, in this sermon. I love this verse. I often quote it. 7.14, when times are good, be happy. Now, that's not hard to do, is it? Someone said, unless you're a sour saint, when times are good, be happy. Have a party. Andy and Carol celebrated their 
25th wedding anniversary last night. I had a house full of people. It was a party. It's a, it's, a, it's a party. There are not many times, you know, celebrate. Have a party. Have a party. Andy and Carol made, what did you make, 38 desserts, Andy? 38 desserts. It was a dessert emporium. I'm sorry, not all of you could have been there. I ate enough for all of us, so I think. Have a party. Times are good. Be happy. When times are bad, here it is. Consider God has made the one as well as the other. And a man cannot know anything about his future. You see? You see? See what he's saying here? Wow. Well, let's, let's look at some specific examples by way of introduction of the mystery or confusion of life under the sun. We say it's not the way it should be. It ought not be this way, but it happens, doesn't it? Not the way it ought to be, but it happens in this world of ours. And there's something futile about it all. There is. The story is told about a young doctor who just graduated from medical school in Texas. Ed Robinson tells a story. He was a brilliant, young, aspiring doctor. He had been accepted into a residency in Rhode Island. He kissed his wife goodbye and left to make the drive to Rhode Island and there he was in Arkansas on the interstate. He came over the ridge and there parked blocking the interstate after the rise in the road was a truck. The young doctor was killed. All his preparation, all his effort, all his aspirations gone in an instant. While at the same time in a nursing home. There's a woman way up in her years. She has Alzheimer's, they say. She's not in her mind. She sits there, no family, no anything, and almost forgotten. And it appears that uh, death has lost her address. For death often keeps such a sloppy appointment book, so he tells. It does make sense. A young, aspiring doctor who would do so good for so many, wiped out in the prime. An old woman left all by herself in a nursing home, lives on and on and on without any appointment for death. You say, that's not the way it should happen. That's not the way it should be, but it happens. There's something futile about this life we live in. You would agree. We also notice in in chapter nine, verse uh, 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 in verse in chapter six, verse one, some specific examples. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth and possessions and honor. So that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them. Man tells, uh, Haddon tells a story again about uh, this political dinner. 
$500 a plate. Filled up. I guess uh, Obama was in town last night. Is that right, at the forum? A lot of times they'll have fundraisers with that. $500 a plate. People show up. The reality is, is that uh, by the time you can afford $500 a plate, and they make a wonderful plate, I'm told. I've never gone to such a thing. By the time you can finally show up and pay your good money, your teeth are just about shot. You can hardly chew it up. You have to have soft food, and uh, if it's a little too spicy, your system can't handle it. Isn't that so? By the time you can finally afford it. I mean, when we're young, it's uh, what? McDonald's and Hamburger Helper. And we could eat anything, but we can't afford anything. But by the time you finally can afford it, I think Haddon's right. You, your teeth, your grinders can't chew it. <laughs> you can't enjoy even the wealth and things that are pretty. You say, like, the, you know, it's not the way it should be. But it happens. We can't even enjoy our wealth, it seems, when God finally gives it. And in 9, chapter 11, by way of another example, this is... Uh, Heather, you mentioned your daughter running today. I often think about this in 9-11. I've seen something else under the sun, an example of an oddity. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. The race is not always to the swift. It's not always the strongest, the brightest, the most able that come out on top. It isn't. Oh, if uh, you're a betting person, uh, the the uh, preacher said, uh, put your money on the, uh, the rabbit. But it's no guarantee, is it? Sometimes the turtle wins. Mostly the rabbit does. But it's not a guarantee, 100%. And that's the life we live. And we say, it's not the way it ought to be. But it happens. Haddon also told the story, as I recount, he met with a businessman there in the city of Dallas. And the man had been in finance and investment for years and years, and he said, uh, so what, uh, what have you learned in all these years? And the man uh, sat back in his chair and he said, and this is what I've learned, he said, some of the stupidest people in all the world that I've ever met have become the wealthiest. And some of the most shrewd and most able, they're in bankruptcy today. You've got to admit, it's not the way it, it ought to be. But it happens. And then you get, begin to think about such things in this world that we live in that seems out of joint and upside down. You begin to sense the futility, the futility of the world that we live in. And finally, in chapter 2, look at that. We'll look at that more later. But chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, the ultimate, most futile thing of all is death. And... Uh, he uh, does tell us that. Uh, the wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart this too is meaningless. The wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. The days to come both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Death is the, is the, the, the great, greatest, most futile thing of all. Both the wise man and the fool die. There's something futile about it. 
I often thought about that uh, when a number of years ago, one of my great heroes, Jim Boyce, died in, I would consider the the prime of his ministry, the prime of his life, just turning into his young 60s uh, there in the city of Philadelphia. Brilliant man, highly trained, Harvard, Princeton educated, doctorate in Europe, and uh, author of 50 books, and New Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic and others. And there he got pancreatic cancer and died within six or eight weeks. He was gone in June. Never forget it. Never forget hearing the day he died. And all of his wisdom and all of his brilliance. And we had thought we would have had him for another 20 years or so. The blessed church, gone. And that very same day, I wondered about some scoundrel or some fool or some ignoramus who didn't do anything with his life. And at that same day was also being laid in a coffin in the ground. He too died that very day. I mean, when you begin to think about life, you begin to sense there's something futile about it. When you do that, you begin to understand the thesis of what Solomon and all his God-given wisdom is trying to teach us. He's trying to put his finger on the very essence of life here. A man spends his whole life building his business. He sweats, he works hours, and if he lived forever, it would all make sense, but the day comes where he no longer can do that. Maybe his sons, maybe others, and he passes the business along, and the reality is he doesn't know whether the, those who receive the fruits of his labors of all those years will be wise men or will be fools, whether they'll lose it all. Often it's said in business, it's the third generation that loses the farm. And you just don't know. And you say, it's not the way it uh, should be. But it happens. And no matter, I remind you how great you are. Your grandchildren will not even, you're great. I will put it this way. You're great. And if not, you're great. Your great, great grandchildren will not even know your name. Vanity of vanities. Meaningless, meaningless. Wow. To sense this is to sense the meaninglessness of life under the sun. Well, Solomon looks in all kinds of places for this key. We're going to look for that as we make our way through a sermon. He's looking for the key that unlocks the mystery of life. And in chapter 1, we'll discover that he looks at nature. And he sees the endless cycles of the rivers and the season, the seasonal changes. And he looks at all that and he says, it's just endless. We start to see moving into April this week. Don't you love April and the showers and the flowers that come up and the springing back the greening and the life and it's beautiful. But you look at that all you want. You won't find the key to the meaning of life or your destiny. Not at all. Then he goes on and he looks at science. And he says with science, you know, you look at science and, and uh, they discover new things about science, but the, there's never anything really brand new. They make new discoveries of that which was here from the creation. But there's really nothing of which can be said. This is brand new. And he said there's no answers really there. Science can tell us how something happened 
History can tell us what happened, but none of them can tell us why it happened. John Calvin writes, even though I cannot understand history, he does, and I can trust his sovereignty. And so he looks not only at nature and science and history, uh, history uh, will discover is like a great relay race. You know, here we are at this portion of the relay race. The generations come and they go, and they lap the track, and they come and they go, and they come and they go, and, and, uh, and that's the way it is. We don't even know who began. We don't even know who was carrying the baton back uh, too far ago. In my own family, I only know a few generations. Some say, well, that's a good thing. Find other criminals and scoundrels in your family. It's probably better off we don't know those kind of things, right? But uh, there's no key there. It's not to be found in history. It's not to be found in theology or philosophy. Um, you can uh, think you're going to go to seminary and uh, study the great answers of life. Finally, read the great books, as uh, Haddon recounts. Uh, I'm going to finally find the book that explains it all. And as he rightfully says, that book has never been written. And in fact, that book can never be written. It cannot. You cannot discover that at all. And finally, he goes into chapter 2 and he talks about living life as a pig. Sensuality, live it up to my tonsils, wine, women, and song, drunkenness, carousing. Uh, having a blast, if you will, and at the end of the day, it didn't help me at all. There was no key that opened the mystery and the wonder of life in that sort of playboy philosophy whatsoever. And he ends at that point with his autobiographical section of his inquiry. Well, that's his premise. We're going to unfold that as we go through that. Well, the third and last observation as Solomon searches for this key that unlocks for us the mystery of life, the solution, we must look up. This man, Solomon, knows his God, and he trusts in him. He trusts in him. And Solomon tells us something about this God that uh, makes him trustworthy. First of all, he tells us that our God is sovereign. In chapter 3, verse 11, we looked at it once. We discover here that God has made everything. He's made it all. He's the sovereign King of kings and the Lord of lords. He does whatsoever he desires to do. And no one, Isaiah tells us, can stay his hand. He is great and awesome. Even though you and I cannot figure out the storyline of your life and mine, and it's filled with all sorts of puzzles, and times it's dark, and it's valley, and uh, it's painful at points. Even though you and I cannot figure out the storyline, it doesn't mean that there's not one. God has written the story, and it has a beginning and end, and it's to His glory. Romans 8.28 is one of the most wonderful verses in all our Bible. Paul tells us, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It is God who has written the novel of human existence and life, from the beginning and the end and all the wherefores and surprises. 
He has the story, and there really is one. It's great. It's the great story. Some of you have read Great Expectations when you were in school. It's a great novel, Charles Dickens. But there's a greater story that has even greater expectations than that, and it's God's story. It's the story of redemption, the story of the greatness of God. He is sovereign. In Romans 8.28, at times when you and I cannot make sense of life, when it seems all upside down, in the midst of our tears and brokenness and questions, we must trust His sovereignty. We must trust that He knows what He is doing, and, he's, and he, is, he will accomplish His purpose. If life seems perplexing to you, don't let the clouds darken your life, that you fail to enjoy the good things that God has placed before you. Resist that. Celebrate in the midst of bewilderment that our God is sovereign and he reigns in the heavens. But more than that, he goes on to tell us B, that God is good. Our God is good. The English word uh, good comes from God's name in English. God is good. If you are sensitive to that all day long throughout the weeks of your days, you ought to see his goodness. And you ought to say to one another the kindness and the goodness and the blessings of God upon your life and your loved ones, upon us. And you ought to thank God for it. He's good. He's not only sovereign, but he's good. He blesses us with his gifts, gifts that, that are to be enjoyed. We're not to love the gifts more than the giver. We're to enjoy the gifts and thank the giver for giving them to us. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we saw here that uh, I know that there's nothing better for men and to be happy and to do good while they live, and that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his work. This, this is a gift of God. They're God's sweet and wonderful gifts. And they're to be enjoyed and to be embraced and to be with gratitude used for his glory. I'm saying don't let the futility of life get in your way of enjoying life. We ought to thank him for it. Thank God for the food that uh, is set on the table before us. We ought to thank him for the drink that's there. We ought to thank him for the beauty of, of life and the wonder of it, and even for our work. Did you know that your work is a gift? It's a gift. Your work is. Again, Haddon recounted uh, in his old age, he said, you know, I've been too busy, and I've been at other times not busy enough, and I've discovered something. To be uh, too busy is far better than not being busy enough. Work is a good thing. It fills our days. It gives us something to do. We get up in the morning, just think how boring life would be if you didn't have anything to do. You'd drive each other crazy. You'd drive your wives nuts, men. Your kids, they'd be putting you out with a dog. I mean, just shoot us, right? God has given us something to do. And we ought to find enjoyment, find joy in doing work. 
at home or at other place where God has given us the talents and the abilities and the opportunities to do that. And it's part of his goodness and his gifts. And so he's saying, in essence, in 3.11, look at 5.19. Look at 5.19, back up to 18. Then I realized it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun, the few days of life that God has given to him. Well, this is his lot. Moreover, when, man, when God gives anyone wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. For he seldom reflects on his days of life because God keeps him occupied with a gladness of heart. And so I say to you uh, that uh, enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, enjoy sex with your wife. It's a Though we may seem squeamish about that, God is not. It's, he's pleased with that. God is good. Beer commercial, you only go around once in life, and so live it with all the gusto you got, isn't half bad insofar as you only go around once. Live life to the gusto. Enjoy it. Enjoy his blessing. Work and work hard. Find joy in that. Enjoy the fruits of that. Don't allow the, the heartbreaks and the sorrows and the, and the mysteries and the oftentimes the, the difficult valleys of life rob you of the sweetness and wonder of life that is ours through the goodness of God. That's, that's really what he's saying to us. Enjoy life even amid its confusion. Live it, respons- uh, live it with gusto. Live it. You know, the text is going to, we'll see that, it says, that a dead lion, a, a live dog is better than a dead lion. A dead lion can't even, can't even roar anymore, right? But a little chihuahua can yap and yap and wag its tail. Live life. Live it today. Any good that you can do, do it now. Any good that you can enjoy, enjoy it now. For one thing's for certain. You and I will not pass this way again. And God is saying, enjoy it. It's okay. Enjoy these gifts that I've given. God is sovereign. Solomon reminds us. He's got a story. He's woven it together. But more than that, God is good. Enjoy the fruits. Don't love them. Love the gift giver and be thankful for the gifts. But third, he tells us that God is just. That's that conclusion. Enjoy life amid its confusion, but live it responsibly. Or one day you and I will give an account of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, Paul tells us, to give an account of ourselves. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's Ecclesiastes 12.13. In the midst of life's mysteries, we can trust his sovereignty. We can enjoy his goodness, and we can live before his holiness. With this in mind, we can step where we cannot see and undergo what we cannot understand in this thing called life. So when you're tempted to give up, and we are at points, aren't we? I just give up. I quit. I can't take it anymore. Don't do that. 
In other times, you may be just tempted to throw up when you see the, the, the gross injustice and the inconsistencies and the terrible things that happen to you and to others. Don't give up. Don't throw up. Rather, just keep looking up. In the light of the brevity of life and the certainty of death, Enjoy God's blessings. Enjoy, he's saying, the fruit of your labors today. And use these blessings for the glory of God. Well, what are some lessons for our life as we wrap up our introductory message? Number one, try as you will. Without God, you'll never figure out the meaning of life. You never will. You never will. It's futile. Not the way it ought to be, but it happens. You'll never figure it out. Life must be God-centered and God-focused in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm also reminded that if you know Christ the Lord as Savior, and you stop living with Him, walking with Him, you know, kind of stop listening to the Word and get off the path, Life all of a sudden gets a little fuzzy as to who am I, where am I doing, what am I supposed to be doing? And we can become far afield in that blurriness. We are made to love him, to walk with him, and to keep our eyes fixed on him. Just like Peter walking on the water. When he took his eyes off the Lord, down he went. And that happens to us if you're a believer. Every single day. Number two. Even as Christians, we must admit that life is often confusing and the understanding of it is often beyond us. It is. It is. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. And it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It happens. My father died at 54. And one of those mile markers for me a very sad time in our family, suddenly struck down. It would be the, really, the prime of life. Tears of flow. You go, Lord, what's the purpose? Bright young men dating my daughter back when, 19, uh, 2001, struck dead by a drunk driver. You go, I Make sense of that. Make sense of that. You, can't, you cannot make sense. Life is fraught with mystery. But Calvin said, even though I don't understand it, I know that God does, and I can trust him. You don't pretend to say there's a book written that will explain to us all the things that will ever happen to you and to me. There isn't. It's impossible. God has never written that book. But there is one. And it's his storyline. And we can trust his sovereignty and his goodness and his justice. Number three, God desires that we trust him and enjoy the gifts that he's given to us. Amen? That's not hard to do. Enjoy. There was once was a, there was a boat that had that very verse on it. I'll never forget it. The emblem of God's blessing. Your children are that. The things on your table. Don't be so worried about tomorrow. Just enjoy God today and serve Him. 
That's the essence of life. Give yourself to that. Enjoy his gifts and thank him for it. Number four, keep looking up. Keep looking up, for God is sovereign, and he's good, and he's just. In the days when the sun is shining, look up. When it's all cloud-covered and dark, and maybe pain racks your, your body or the body of a loved one, keep looking up. Don't quit. Don't throw up. Look up. Keep looking up. And number five and last, first, I'm reminded for you to walk with God, you must be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. He is the personification of all wisdom. You must, you must be born again. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for all my sin. Thank you for dying in my stead. If you believe that and pray that with all your heart, you shall be saved today. Would you do that? I'm here to help any one of you, young or old, it matters not. You must be born again. Well, what is Solomon telling us here? Answering quickly the question, is life really worth living? Don't let the futility of life Get in your way of enjoying God and his gifts that he's given you today. That's what he's saying. 